Okay, guys, take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Ephesians chapter um, 3, uh, 4, and let's continue our work in uh, the book of Ephesians. You follow as I read. I'll begin at verse 1, and I will conclude at verse 16. Here we go. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Hey guys, there's a lot that is written about this little section of scripture. Uh, if you by books. There's a lot written about this. But it, uh, what's written normally is concentrating on verses 11 through 17. Our concentration is not going to be there. It's going to be on the first three verses of, of this chapter. Um, there are those uh, scholars, commentarians, who, uh, who like to think of the book of Ephesians as kind of a mini version of the book of Romans. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 is one of the reasons that they say that. Let me explain what they're saying. What the, 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 the comparison is, is this. That in the book of Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters describing and introducing some glorious doctrinal themes. Uh, justification, sanctification, union with Christ in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Then he comes to chapter 12 in Romans, verse 1, and he says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. And so what Paul does is, he says, in light of those 11 chapters that I've just written to you, in light of all that richness that I've just told you about, I am calling you to then present your bodies, which is your living sacrifice, which is a reasonable sacrifice. Now, so uh, what he does is make application by appealing to the rich truths that he's already described in the first 11 chapters. Now, the commentarians say that he's done the same thing here. 
He didn't take 11 chapters to do it. He only took three. He took the first three chapters, and what he did in those three chapters is is explain and and present some glorious themes of of Christian truth. And then he comes to um, chapter 4. And then he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what Paul does is, after he has laid out some richness of theological truth describing who we are as children of God, in light of that, he then says, all right, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called. What he does is that he moves from doctrine to duty. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you need to listen up. Not to me, but the New Testament is calling you to duty. Now, gang, let me, let me hasten to say three quick things. First of all, you can never change that order. It is always the richness of who we are based on the finished work of Christ. Then comes the call to duty. Never the reverse. It's never, hey, 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 y'all, go out and do this, 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 and this, and you'll become this. No. The, the, the order is always, this is who you are. Now, in light of that, go, do, go live this way. <clears throat> now, guys, that's the first thing that you've got to keep in, keep in mind. People who are being called to this are being called to this because they've already come into a relationship with God through faith in Christ. They're not being called to this so that they might become that. No, no. That's moralism, ladies and gentlemen. The, the order is, this is who you are as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now, live this way. Got that? The other thing that I want you to see is that the, that the New Testament often calls or, or likens the Christian life to a walk. It often uses that word walk to, to represent the Christian way of life. It's, it's a walk. It's not a sprint. It, it's, not a, it's not a skip. But it's the most regular and ordinary of all motions. Christianity is the slow, regular doing of the right. Steady, repeated, almost even boring actions over and over again. Left, right, left, right. Um, that's what will take you somewhere in the Christian life. Who you are is the result of walking. 
little things, basic disciplines, um, daily practices, nothing immediate, nothing fancy, no secrets, no special techniques, no formulas, just the steady, ordinary repetition of the things that are right. Right, left, right, left. The Christian life is the, the adding of small gains onto the already gained. Now, the other thing that I, I, I just by way of a side road, is an introduction. Guys, just a moment ago, I used the word duty. And for a lot of people, Duty is an ugly word when it comes to Christianity. Guys, um, the vocation of the Christian is to be a Christian for heaven's sake. Gang, Paul has moved in Ephesians, as he did in Romans, from doctrine to duty. He's given you three chapters of rich truth. He comes to chapter 4 and he says, therefore, based on what I've just told you, I urge you. I urge you to walk worthy of that. Gang, without a moment's hesitation, I say to you, there are behaviors that are Comely, that are appropriate, that are fitting. There are standards, standards that are comely. There is a lifestyle that is worthy. The implication very clearly being that there is a lifestyle that's unworthy. Unworthy of the calling by which we've been called. You know, guys, there's a lot of a lot of people in the name of grace who don't like the word duty at all. Um, For them, it smacks of legalism. Guys, the New Testament does not hesitate to make appeal after appeal after appeal to walk worthily. To walk right. It, 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 is, it is not legalism when the Christian is called to duty. And it's a sloppy understanding of grace that draws back from outlining clear New Testament commands. I, I told a story on Wednesday nights that I, I, I love to tell. Um, it illustrates what I'm trying to say, I think. I was in conversation one time with a, a, with a seminarian uh, who's a student at a very good seminary. Um, and he was telling me of other seminarians in his seminary where they have started conducting Bible studies in Hooters. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, you can agree or you cannot agree. I, I really don't care. That is not worthy walking. And, gang, the, to some, the idea of um, a dutiful obedience, a faithful walk, a worthy walk, is, is just legalism. And, and, and I can only say in reply, you'll have to take that up with the Apostle Paul. Because he doesn't hesitate for a second to call us to a lifestyle and to behaviors which are fitting and appropriate and comely and consistent with the calling by which to which we have been called. Meaning that some of those lifestyles, some of those, they're just not worthy of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, and they got to go. Now, <clears throat> all of that by way of introduction, we, we need to look at the text itself, um, which really, l- let me show you, in verse 2, Paul begins to describe that worthy walk. Um, he, he does it in rather two distinct halves. The first half is a description of the church. Guys, if you look at verse 1, you'll see the pronoun you, Y-O-U, twice. In the Greek, both of those are in the plural. That means Paul is addressing a group, a group of people, the church. And then in verse 17, he moves to describe or to address individuals. You'll notice in verse 17, you'll find the word walk again. But from 17 to the end of chapter 5, he's addressing individuals. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, there is an individual kind of worthy walk. And then there is a corporate kind of worthy walk. There's a walk that individual believers ought to be walking in response to who they are. And there is a corporate worthy walking that should be true about churches in response to who they are. Now, guys, he mentions about three things. Maybe we could say four or five, but I'm just going to concentrate on three. Three characteristics of what he would say are attributes of the worthy walk of a church. Humility. Bearing with one another. It's right there in verse 3. Or, or two, and then in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Those three things are characteristics of a church, or should be, of a church that is walking worthily in response to the precious truths of the gospel they claim. Let's talk about them. Three of them. The first one is humility. He says it in verse 2, with all humility. 
There's no room for arrogance in the Christian church. Is that enough? (laughs) I don't think so. Guys, um, pride is the stuff that lurks behind every bit of church discord. If there is any. If there is church discord, you can bet that there's pride. Gang, I can spend the rest of the afternoon showing you from the, particularly the Old Testament, of how pride ruined not only people, but whole nations. Um, I, I, I won't spend all that time, but I would like to draw your attention to three. You don't need to turn there, but in, in, in the southern kingdom, Judah's history, she had some good kings and she had some bad kings. But two of the better ones were kings by the name of Uzziah and Hezekiah. Hezekiah was probably the best since David. But this is said about Uzziah, who was a good king. It says, 26, uh, 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. This is said about Hezekiah, probably the best king since David. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud, therefore wrath came upon him. Um, but here's, here's a statement about a nation, the, the, the city-state Tyre, T-Y-R-E, kind of an island off in the Mediterranean. It says this about Tyre. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, your heart has become proud in your wealth. Um, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. So I brought fire out from your midst and it consumed you. Guys. Pride is a real home wrecker. But it's a real church wrecker too. The New, the New Testament says that God resists the proud and, and, and gives grace to the humble. You better believe he does. One of the things that's supposed to mark a church when she's walking worthily is that she's humbled. You know, it, usually it's easy to spot arrogance it's usually found in the senior pastor that that's that's usually easy to spot but there's some more subtle forms i I found this out about myself recently and 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 not to say that because it's true of me it's got to be true of you but i bet it is um the people that we immediately and and instinctively like and find it easy to get along with Those are the people who give us the respect that we think we deserve. On the other hand, conversely, the people that we immediately and instinctively dislike are those who treat us below the dignity that we think should be ours. So, in other words, personal pride is a key factor in all of our relationships. We look for relationships that allow us to hold on to our high view of ourselves. And we have found a way to sanctify that. We call it self-esteem. Ladies and gentlemen, I have said this until I'm almost blue in the face. Anything that starts with the word self. We ought to run from it. 
The best self-esteem is no self-esteem. The best self-esteem is, is a Christ-esteem. That is, that my dignity, my worth, my value is found in the fact that I'm related to the King of glory and that I am in union with him. But instead of that, what we do is we replace it with, we replace Christ-esteem with this thing called self-esteem. And we become these little islands of need looking out for people who will meet my needs. And treat me with the respect that I think I deserve. And we call that self-esteem. It's also self. Self-promoting. Self-protective. You know, guys, I've said this before. I guess I'll say it a hundred times more. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. There's there's another subtle way it creeps into the church. Nothing will more quickly divide God's people than a love of power and position. People jockeying for position, befitting our status. It's pride, ladies and gentlemen. It's just pride. What we're supposed to be doing is, is, is communicating or is conveying respect for people because we recognize their God-given worth, which is humility. Guys, um, if you've still got your Bibles open and you can find this real uh, I'd love for you to see this. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians 4. And um, let me let you find it first and, and, uh, because I, I want to say a couple of things about it. But it's in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. And, and the verse consists of three sentences, and I'm really interested in the center sentence. This is in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4. It says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That middle sentence in there, ladies and gentlemen. What do you have that you did not receive? Hmm? What do you have? What do you have that you didn't receive? Ladies and gentlemen, I I would suggest to you, and I don't think this is much of an overstatement, if you and I, if, if the church of Jesus Christ could get her mind wrapped around that one principle. We wouldn't have any more Mr. Big Shots. Nobody would be puffed up. Nobody would, be infl- would have inflated views of themselves because we would all recognize that what we have is something that God gave us. And that would be the outskirts of heaven, would it not? No, it wouldn't. It would be the church as she is intended to be. One of the characteristics of a worthy walk for a church is that she walks in humility. The second thing is that she uh, bears with one another. I love that statement because you know what it implies? It implies that, it implies that there's going to be numerous opportunities for you to forbear. That I am going to give you, and others, but I am going to give you numerous opportunities to forbear. 
And here's what forbearance is, guys. Forbearance is, is, is that when we are patient with, with respect to the sins of somebody else. Not judgmental and harshly critical, that makes us ugly. But uh, we're never winking at sin or trying to make or to devalue it. But the reason that we're supposed to bear with one another, ladies and gentlemen, is because you and I understand the doctrine of the fall. We understand that we've all been ravaged by the entrance of sin. All of us. All of us. All of us. That we've all been victimized by the cosmic car wreck known as the fall. We also are supposed to understand the doctrine of sanctification, which says that we're, that as a new Christian, I'm not immediately sanctified overnight. And that by definition, I am flawed, I am broken, I am inconsistent, and everybody has baggage that they bring with them into the kingdom of God, and no two people start at the same place when they become Christians And knowing all that, we're supposed to uh, forbear. You know, ladies and gentlemen, some of us never have struggled. We don't struggle with things that you struggle with and never have, not as a Christian or a non-Christian. You know what? As a non-Christian, I didn't struggle with gambling. I don't struggle with it now. I didn't struggle with it then. But you may. Because none of us start at the same point. Knowing all that, I am to make every excuse I can for your sin, but not for mine. You know, there are, there are some people who cannot stand certain features about me. Imagine that. (laughs) What is there about me not to love? But you put 2,000 people in the same church thinking like that, and you got yourself a big old mess. The second characteristic about worthy walk of a church is that she's supposed to bear with or forbear each other. And you can bet that you're going to be given plenty of opportunity to obey that. Here's the third thing. It's uh, in verse 3 where he says um, we are to um, uh, maintain the unity in the spirit, in the bonds of peace. Um, Guys, um, we know that sin divides, but because we've been brought to Christ, we, we have been reunited. This text says that we have a unity. We're not, we don't need to create it. We're simply asked to maintain it. Because um, the Spirit has baptized us all into the same body. By the way, this is not spirit with a small s, like the spirit of togetherness. No, no, no. This is a unity that the spirit of God has created. I don't create it, but I can sure interrupt it. I can be the agent of interrupting the unity that the spirit has created. How how, how can we do that? 
Guys, there's lots of ways, I'm sure. The one I'd like to just mention to maybe illustrate is, um, is becoming as a church the kind of place where we, will, we want peace at whatever price. Um, guys, that's one of the pseudo-attempts, one of the artificials, one of the synthetics uh, of, of this unity that's described here. Because you and I live in, a, in an age of ecumenicity where um, uh, we're all supposed to be at peace with one another. And uh, we'll do anything to have it, even if that means to devalue truth. Ladies and gentlemen, peace is important. But in some places, it's too important. Peace is important. But so is truth. Peace is important, but so is purity, ladies and gentlemen. So do I fight for the deity of Christ? You bet I do. Do I fight over inspiration? You bet I do, ladies and gentlemen. Guys, um, unity, so-called unity, that comes at the expense of truth, is not what this is talking about. This, this stuff is something that the Spirit created and unites us all. And you tamper with truth. And you won't ever, ever have any kind of peace like the New Testament is talking about. I, I can't be one of those who reject truth and expect to have unity. I, I might have some kind of nice little giddy social event. Paul is not appealing for some vague spirit of friendship and cooperation. Let's work together. That stuff is entirely human, ladies and gentlemen, and it never works because of sin. This stuff is organic it's it's internal and it has to do with the trinity that is the trinity has has brought us into a relationship with this with the trinity and our unity is to reflect theirs it's interesting too that he goes on in these following verses that this unity is enriched by the diversity of our spiritual gifts that's what he does in verses 7 through 12 one of the best helps to Christian unity is a New Testament understanding and grasp of spiritual gifts. Because if you understand spiritual gifts, one of the things that that means is, I need you. Because I don't have all the gifts. And neither do you. And so that's supposed to draw us closer together. Because of what the Holy Spirit has given us and is doing inside us. Gang, I, I read this story oh, a couple of weeks ago um, about a man I don't know. His name is Charles Ives. He was an American composer. He, um, he was the first to study polyrhythms and polytonality like you find in jazz. Um, but there's a little story about his life that I thought is a good illustration. He was, uh, <clears throat> as a boy, he was downtown one day with his parents and he was standing at a corner. And um, <clears throat> as he stood there, <clears throat> there were two marching bands 
that were approaching this same corner from, from, from different directions, and they were all converging on the same corner that he, was, that he was standing at. And the two bands were playing different tunes, and they were playing them in different keys. And as they drew closer and closer, this wildly uh, different music began to mix all up and, and, and just jumble all up into this melange of musical noise. And I've said it was the most beautiful sound he'd ever heard. Now, guys, I, I'm not a, a musician, so I can't comment on Mr. Ives' artistic contributions. But the story, I think, does make for a good metaphor of unity in the Christian church. Gang, <clears throat> unity doesn't depend on everyone wearing the same uniform and, and marching in the same direction and, and, and playing the same tune. That's worldly sameness. This unity is produced by a common attachment to the same Lord. We're not called to conform to one another. We're called to conform to the maestro. And if we're all committed to conform to Jesus Christ, you know what it does for us? It draws us together. Unity will never come through human beings trying to conform to other human beings. The New Testament's emphasis on vertical union with Christ is supposed to be the prerequisite for a horizontal unity among us. So, this unity begins with our embracing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Has everybody in here done that? Has everybody in here embraced this Savior as yours? If you haven't, today's your day. Let's settle that right now. What do you say? And then, as a church, we set about to walk in humility, forbearing one another, and oh, so eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a little bit about what a church is supposed to look like. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will use these comments from your word to uh, stir all of us as a part of the same um, visible church might we know something about the eager pursuit of humility, of forbearance, and a spirit-produced unity. Do that, Father, um, not because we're anything special, but because we find our delight in yielding to you as you've described yourself through this book. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and we do so in the name of Jesus.